Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. The chance to work with Mikel was a big one because he really uh, interested me in the in the discussions we had before I got the job because the level of tactical detail and, and uh, understanding of the game I had never come across before. Our guest today is Andreas Georgson. Andreas has been the sporting director for Swedish champions Malmo since July of 2021. Previously, he was the set piece and individual development coach at Brentford before taking up the role of set piece coach at Arsenal last season. In fact, he was the first ever set piece coach at Arsenal and the first individual development and set piece coach at Brentford, pioneering both roles at the clubs. In our conversation, we discussed how he turned Arsenal into one of the best defensive set-piece clubs in England, first-hand experiences of Mikel Arteta, how Malmo are aiming to beat the biggest budgets in Europe, and how he approached coaching individual development at the highest level. Malmo is my club after, I mean, after 14 years, my whole professional career in football is here. So I have more or less done everything, been a school coach, a team coach at the academy, a first team assistant, uh, working in, in strategies and methodology in many years. So a big thing is, of course, my loyalty against this club and against this city. I really just like it <laughs> in both a geographical way and a and professional way to be here. Uh, and then I think also the two the two jobs in Brentford and Arsenal gave me a lot of pleasure and a lot of learning and, and strong relationships uh, built. But the set piece role was a little bit too detailed just for me to over a long period of time and a long future be completely fulfilled just as a human being and as a professional. It's I, I am a person a bit of of bigger picture and and I would want to have the chance to to create strong teamwork and strong togetherness so when this opportunity came up the timing was quite well for different reasons for me to actually do something that was not watching a thousand set pieces every week (laughs) Uh, because I really enjoyed my time in both of these clubs but I just felt if I look for the longer term I knew it will probably exhaust me. It will not give me pleasure. And I'm quite driven by this passion. I have to I have to enjoy uh, every day going to work if I'm going to perform. You know, you said you've obviously been at Mama for most of your career. Uh, most people in the audience probably don't know too much about Malmo. Can you kind of talk about the history of the club and what makes it unique? Yeah, I mean the history, the traditions is strong. Of course, it's the it's the team in Sweden that has now, with quite a margin, become the most successful in terms of championships won. So that is probably the, they were in the Europa Cup final 1979. So that put us on the map map uh, in some minds in the football world. Uh, but lately, like the last decade, has then been really strong in terms of uh, European competition. So we've had three Champions League group stages over the last uh, nine years now, eight years. And we've had two knockout stage uh, Europa League uh, during this period. So for a small club 
in that circumstance with the smallest budget, I think more or less in both group stages, we have managed to get into the minds of, of European football, I think. Uh, and I like to think that that comes from a very structured, visionary work for years, uh, both from academy and, and first team to, to build uh, a build teams, build organization and, and make decisions from a, a common way, uh, the sky blue way to, to just try to have the best processes in the world, not the biggest contracts, but the best processes in terms of player development and team development. So what is the, the sky blue way that you just mentioned? No, so the, the, the part where I've been most of my career is in the academy, and that's where it's thought that to find a way to to develop people and players more efficiently. And I think in football, that starts on understanding what makes a player fulfill their potential. And in football, uh, not only in Sweden, I think all over the world, there's a risk at young age that results take completely over the, the planning and the schedule of your life. So you make actually uh, result maximizing environments and result maximizing processes. And I think we quite early understood that if we're going to have world-class talent development, we have to have learning maximizing development. So we have to create something where style of play, recruitment, training methods are in an environment where we really want to win, but where improving development over time is actually the priority one. So to try to keep those two thoughts at the same time to really have the possibility to compete in every duel, every game to really want to win, but not let that thought take over your whole process around developing planning, uh, developing players. Because for many years there, there are other things that are a little bit more important and I have to form the way we play, the way we recruit, the way we train. You mentioned kind of early developers before. Um, I read a term that you um, kind of maybe addresses this a little bit. You called it grandma scouting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that term and you know what it means to you? Yeah, not to offend any grandmas out there because I'm sure there's a lot of strong football eyes, but it's more of in youth football, it's really easy to spot the strongest player. I mean, you don't need a lot of experience to see who is at the moment performing at the highest level for this team. This is very easy, but it's often connected to physical development so that, or cognitive development. So players that are really early matured in one way or another, they will be spotted. But in the same year group, there will be players that for different reasons, either physical, cognitively or other reasons, they're really late. So they might have the same potential over time, but if you only measure, again, if you only measure the effect they have on the weekend result, they will not be talented. But we, we know that many of these players are really talented, but they're just further down in their development stage. So then we need to be really strong at recognizing what is talent then. And it, how is it showed in different uh, year groups and a different level of, of the biological development of a player? So that is when it gets really tricky. So even when I have worked with this for 15 years, I still, I'm still really humble to the fact that it's hard to understand what 13-year-old or 15-year-old will have what it takes to go all the way. 
because it's also really random. There will happen things in his life and his career that we cannot predict. So what looks like a highway to recognition and first elite player level, uh, there's so many things that we don't, we cannot predict or that might happen that will affect the player's chance to reach his potential. So it's both accepting that we cannot predict everything, but also at the same time have a plan to as good as possible make those predictions and find it not only from the ones that are streaming talents, also find it with the ones that are hidden talents. So what at what age do players come into the academy? So the biggest inflow of players is when they start seventh grade here. So that is when we actively really work with the recruitment and that is to our seventh grade. Uh, so before that also players start early with us at six years old. Anyone can come to our football school for the first three years. And then we select the nine-year-old team that then are uh, like the players that we feel are the furthest down development and have the highest potential at that point. But we really do very limited scouting and we don't want to put the players through too much competition until they are 12 years old uh, in regards of their spot in the squad or the squad in the, the spot in the team. But from 12 years old, we really we really think that our education is so strong that we believe that the biggest talents really benefit from being with us. Uh, but that could also be being with us in terms of going in one of our schools. So they might go to a Malmö school, but not joining the Malmö team yet. So, I mean, again, there's 20 schools in the region from grade seven in school, but we only have 15 or 18 players in this team in each year group. But that gives us the chance to really like track development and influence like three, 400 player in each year group with three or four sessions a week in school time. So that is a massive uh, possibility for us to scout the whole region without having to have all the players. They can stay with their clubs. They can be really important in their different teams. We could even stimulate them by bringing them into trials or following us on, on tournaments or friendlies. And then when the time is right and they are ready to really enjoy and develop in our environment, okay, then we can then we can have them with us. That's really interesting because it's a, in contrast to the kind of English model where you have kind of the one set academy and the kids all come into that. And if, you know, once they're in the academy, they get the primary, like mm -hmm. the most of the attention. Yes. Um, whereas you've kind of decentralized it a bit um, kind of at, at that younger age. So, so when does that kind of stop or when, when do you kind of focus in not on the, the other schools, the Malmo schools, but mostly in your academy? Now, I mean, from 13, of course, there's a really big focus on our own team. Uh, mm -hmm. So that is that is clear. It's just it gives us a chance to be broader in the in the development of the region's players. So I think from 13 years old, it's very it's high focus from us. And we invest a lot of money in the coaches being able to work purely on player development. So they shouldn't have to do too much admin. They shouldn't have hybrid roles. They should be coaches and, and work with player development for the full working week. Uh, so it's more the chance to, on the same time, keep our eyes open, affect more players in the region uh, and build a strong foundation for recruitment, of course. So it's still, of course, the players that are in our academy, they get the, the biggest attention. They get all the specialist work and the coaches are full-time with us, player development. So that is still the ship 
that we really believe will create the next big first team player. Now, you know, CIES Observatory, you know, released numbers on, um, you know, academy players from clubs around Europe uh, to see how many professionals they had in all the 31 European leagues that they studied. And Malmo's academy had produced 28 players, according to them, which was the same amount as Bayern Munich and, you know, ahead of, you know, some other um, really good academies like uh, Real Sociedad and um, Inter Milan. So I, I guess what I'm curious about is why do you think um, you've been so successful, like producing these players? Is, is there any one kind of particular thing that kind of sets you apart? from uh, other clubs or is it just kind of this structured identity that you've been talking about? No, I mean, to be honest, I think our biggest advantage is just our trademark and our position in the region. We are, of course, with good work in academy recruitment methodology, we have made that attractiveness increase, but it's also, we have a lucky spot that we are the only elite club in the in Malmö, which is Sweden's third biggest uh, city. Uh, and we don't have too much competition over talent in this mm. region. So that is why we can be calm in letting them stay in their clubs, train in our schools, because we don't have to force them in early to try to like lock them in. Uh, so we can be quite cool in the way we wait until a player is ready uh, and see the benefits of sometimes having them stay in their environment for maybe some of the years, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, at, at different points. So I think that is actually our biggest strength that we don't have to force it. We don't have to stress because, again, if we if it's too early that the players are feeling they are the selected ones, they are the, the magic one, we know also this could sometimes be a challenge to, to keep their mindset as a learning mindset, to keep being self-driven and looking for improvement rather than rewards. So I think that is that is definitely one. But that also means that we have really competitive groups. So the intensity and the level of competition in training and games for our players are really top. So we, we want to train a lot. We want to train at full speed. And already from 13 years old, the, the players train five, six sessions where our main aim is to have intensity and togetherness as high as possible. And then let the game help us develop the players. We don't think we are the best driver of development. We think the players and the game is the main drivers and we are the we are helping them guiding uh, with guidance. Uh, and I think this this is lucky because we're the attractiveness of the club makes sure the talent is so high in our ear groups and in our staff, the coaching staffs. And if we just don't go in and interfere and try to talk half the sessions or <laughs> try to have uh, like destroy the good environment they create just by competing at high speed and we just have a great likelihood of getting good players out so it's a combination i think our our vision in how to train how to play and how to recruit makes us avoid many of the the risks uh, of youth football but also the how attractive we are as a club just helps us to get the best talent in now, you were a youth coach for, you know, as you mentioned, for almost around 14 years um, or a little bit less than that. Um, you know, how did you get into coaching? Because I know you have a slightly unorthodox kind of journey into it. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I wasn't too good to become a player. I was really I kind of late understood what it takes to make a real 
good career. So then I and then I wasn't good enough. So, but I've always had a massive passion for football. It's been my life since I was, I feels like since I was three years old. So to then when I realized I cannot make it as a player, I just was really, I got the opportunity to become a school coach at Malmö when I was actually uh, just taking my master's in economics, but it just, this passion took over. If I can work with football full time, I have to give it a go. And then from there, it just, I think my mindset is I want to learn, I want to improve. And as I had some really good bosses, they helped me fulfilling the one target after another. And all of a sudden I got some really interesting and fun jobs. And now all of a sudden I'm a sporting director. So it's been quite a random roadmap uh, where I just think trying to get better has been my only vision <laughs> uh, through all the through all the years. Do you think because you don't have like an elite playing background, it was actually a little bit beneficial to you, um, you know, kind of coming from a different kind of way? Yeah, not a little bit. I think uh, completely for me. I think just like a player that have to struggle because maybe he's not early developed, he have to work harder in preparations, in understanding the game, in handling the ball. They normally create the character uh, that's about improvement and looking inside when they need to get better. And the same, I think, is a little bit when you don't have any playing background and you come into coaching or or football, you just have to work four times as hard to get the opportunities and you have to work your way from bottom and up. And that means you really have to think deep about leadership. What values do I stand for? How do I get an effect? I don't have the skill sets that an elite player has when it comes to understanding the fine, fine things about playing the game at top level. So I've had to learn it and I have to learn it through the players. I have to help them help me understand uh, what it's, the finer thing that I haven't realized, uh, experienced myself. So of course, then you build a mindset that I cannot, <laughs> I cannot wait for things to happen. I have to try to work hard and, and try to learn. So I constantly improve. And some ex players has it, but of course they sometimes they get the jobs easier, so they don't have to force their way through that way of thinking. So I'm not saying it's impossible for any former elite player to have it because they have something that I don't have. But there's a lot of incitement for me to really go that way. Otherwise, I will never have a chance. Now, after spending so much time at Malmo, you went to coach at Brentford as a set-piece coach and an individual development coach. Um, you know, how did that opportunity come about? No, actually, through this this way of thinking, when I did my pro license, I had a chance to travel to meet uh, some clubs to to un, to get inspiration. And uh, Brentford was really, I was really curious uh, in their their journey. They Matthew Benev had owned them for a while then and started to do things differently. Uh, Rasmus Ankersen was a person that really impressed me in the way he spoke about the game and and about uh, finding an edge. So I just asked if I can come and visit them. Uh, and I did, and I had a chance to speak to both Rasmus and Thomas Frank and, and Nico, uh, the set-piece coach that was there ahead of me. So I just started building some relationships. And I think one year later, they needed a coach uh, and they asked if I was interested. And first I was not because I thought I'm not a set-piece coach, <laughs> but then they built this role that was more of an assistant coach with a lot of individual development in it 
and then they just sold it to me very good so i i couldn't turn it down so i went and and then it just happened a lot of things happened quickly after that now i want to do i do want to talk about set pieces with you but i, I want to s- stick for the moment with individual development mm-hmm. you know what does you know the term in develop individual development coach mean to you now that's really interesting because uh, i think for anyone that hears it they think okay you want someone that brings the, a player out and he brings a sack of balls and then he does some isolated football work and of course that could be one method to work a detail that you don't have enough time or a chance to do in the collective training but for me it's it's uh, something else it's more because football is a team sport the collective pro, the, the results is really important especially at high level so everything points at just focusing on the collective process make the collective process as strong as possible and then all teams know that they also need to focus on the individuals but when when the everyday hits and the next game is 3 days away all the time it's very hard to stay on track with also the individual process so then you need a method where the individual development process is not so big that it takes oxygen from the collective process because any head coach will then say that no no we have to prioritize the collective because the game is coming up so for me it was understanding how can i build that individual process strong and how can i keep focusing on it also in tough game periods so that made me build the idea of of how a program like that needs to be organized so the head coach feels that he's in control it's not taking or uh, too much oxygen from the collective process but it rather helps the collective because for every percentage gained in the individual development the team gets stronger so that was what i spent 2 years because i was also a bit in this process in arsenal and now i'm heavily involved in it in malmo uh, so building a program that that can be managed without harming the collective process but actually enhancing it I want to paint a picture for our listeners. You know, so what was like a normal week like for you, you know, in terms of just individual development, not not the set pieces, um, you know, what did that program look like on a week to week level? No, I would say I never since both of the spells in Brentford Norsel became only season long and mm-hmm. set pieces got a lot of attention because again, yeah. that wins us the game. So during those two years it was actually a lot about just forming the the plan. <laughs> and then I tr- of course I worked it and I had, had a chance to do it individually with the few players. Uh but that really came to understanding if you're going to develop as a human being you need to first feel well. You need to have a general well-being that is good. And some players get it through playing every week. but some players doesn't because they don't play they don't feel appreciated they don't like going to work so that was my first understanding that i have to start there uh, understanding where are the players just in their general well-being uh, and when i realized that i need to try to build a mindset for learning with them so what does it takes for you to learn and improve over time uh, in terms of accepting mistakes as part of the process uh don't blame anyone else or anything else when something goes wrong try to learn and look inside uh, how do you drive your own development and how do you compete every day because if you don't compete you're not going to survive on elite level and then just forming from that just small parts 
of development in terms of knowing what your edge is, uh, knowing what your role is, have just one development target at the time in those two areas, and then understanding what medical weaknesses and what fitness weaknesses do you need to improve to reach your full potential. So that was building a program that was as limited as possible so the players don't have to take too much of his cognition on that because it's still the team process that is the most important. But then there are at least are clear short to medium term targets that they can focus on uh, because I think that is what's needed. They need to have a frequent feedback within one area to have a chance to improve it. And as soon as the program becomes too wide or too deep, it's impossible for both coaches and players to stay on track. When the games hit twice a week, you cannot have 20 development targets because they will get lost. The the frequency of the feedback would be too rare. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like a lot of the work or a lot of this program that you were setting up really focuses, you know, on the mental side. Um, Mm -hmm. Not, as you said, not, you know, out on the training pitch, just, you know, practicing free kicks or something, but, you know, um, you know, maybe could be analyzing film or getting the psychology um, to, to match where it needs to be. 100%. And also that a lot, again, that's what I said in the beginning, it's not so much one player on 10 balls and one coach. It's just as much as making sure that when that one time happens in the training where you actually hit the target we're talking about, that you get the feedback. You don't have to have the feedback on the other 99 development steps you take that week. But in that target area we're working, when it happens, I want the coach to have the chance to recognize it and remind the player that either that was exactly what we have talked about or remember that is what we now need to improve. Uh, But that is why the scope cannot be so big because how can the coach keep track of eight different players if they have 10 different targets each and then find the frequency and feedback that we look for. So, but it, it definitely feels like it was a bit collaborative, like you working with other coaches to, 100%, 100%. Um, to work That's on That's what I mean. I don't think individual development in team sport could be an isolated thing that you do with a specialist. It has to be driven by the player, involved in the collective process for me. Otherwise, I cannot see it efficient in an elite environment. Now, you said you did get to put this into practice with a, a few players while yep. you were at Brentford. Did how interested were they in you know this program? No, massively. I mean, at that level, both Brentford and also the players, they just want to improve and they just want to win over time. Uh, so anything that can help them make that happen, they're willing to invest all the time and effort. But the problem was if at some in some relationships with the players, some of the players were not feeling really well and they were not feeling appreciated. So of course to try to speak about development with a player that feel you don't care about me, that's harder. So then you first have to make them feel that I really care about you and your development. And even if you don't get the playing minutes at this point, for the rest of your career, let's invest now. You and me in trying to make you the best version of yourself. So once you win that relationship and you win that trust, Jesus, they are willing to spend as much time as you can do uh, in the week. So that's what I mean. There's such a potential in this area, but it's tricky. And if you don't start with winning the player trust and winning the motivation and uh, the direction with the player, then you can have the most beautiful plans in the world and you will get no effect. Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, it must be really difficult to really get that buy-in, that motivation. 
is 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 there any one tactic you use to kind of get that from people that maybe weren't feeling uh, too good about themselves? I think they have to just feel it's all about the player. It's not about me. It's not about my ego as a coach to to take them from one step to another. Uh, I try to think whatever you're going to do in life, <laughs> if you find a way to feel well about yourself and to really learn in your everyday, you're going to be a good parent. You're going to be a good friend. You're going to be a good employee. You're going to be good at whatever you do in life later on. So it's not only about football. It's about creating a a mind that will help you through anything in life. Uh, so that, of course, it's not hard. It's not easy and you don't always succeed. But as long as the players feel you really is there for them and not for yourself, the I feel the, the chance of success together is really good. So then, then it's always possible. Now, after Brentford, you went to Arsenal. Um, you know, what made that move happen? Probably the chance to work with Mikel was a big one because he really uh, interested me in the in the discussions we had before I got the job because the level of tactical detail and, and uh, understanding of the game I had never come across before. So he was, I felt I had gaps in this area from all the educations I've taken. I felt that that level of tactical detail and methodology in, in building a football team, I had never been close. So again, from thinking about mainly how can I improve <laughs> this guy in that environment can really help me improve at the top level of world football with all the expectations and all uh, like uh, competition I have will have to uh, live with I felt it's I mean I really had just settled in at Brentford but I felt I mean this chance might not come for a like 38-year-old from Sweden that has no player background and, and quite limited experience even in elite football. So I was just, if, it, if they like me and they want me, I don't think I can, I will regret it if I don't take the chance. So that was probably it. You know, is there something he said in those conversations that kind of convinced you or that really opened your eyes and, you know, made you think, oh, wow, this guy is, you know, uh, on a whole nother level? Uh, probably that... Of course, him explaining his style of play and style of train gave me insights into what level of detail he thinks about. Uh, but also, I was then starting to become a specialist of set pieces. And I had really thought hard about that for a few years. So when I explained the ideas and methods I use and the level of questions and discussions we had on that, I just realized for a manager to be so deep into one detail of the game that is set pieces that normally is not of biggest attention for many football people. I just realized, okay, this guy doesn't give anything to chance. <laughs> he he uh, he wants to have the most effective processes in every aspect of the game. Uh, so it was probably more that, that I felt, wow, I have spent a lot of time now trying to understand how to make this good. And the conversations we had gave me new insights and, and new ideas to make it even better. So obviously that, you know, is how you got there, how he recruited you. What was it actually like working with him on a kind of day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Uh, no, so then it's quite normal football work. I mean, the, the locker room at Malmö or Brentford is not too different from a locker room in Premier League with Arsenal. Even, I mean, the... the the family feeling of that place of Colney is amazing. They, I mean, it was very humble people and, and team players throughout, uh, staff and players, I felt. 
So there was no big difference in what we did every day. Uh, and the togetherness of, of the staff and players was amazing. I mean, I, I have to say. So from there on, it was just normal work. We worked hard. There was a lot of games and, and we you have to spend a lot of hours in your profession. But in just terms of making a group come together, feel good about themselves, compete for a common cause, this is very normal. Uh, my experience there was that I I came from a highly, like uh, we had work, Brentford had for many years worked very deep into set pieces and made it part of their identity. And uh, I think Arsenal at that point was more a traditional club in terms of what level of focus have set pieces got. So it in the beginning, it was quite, uh, I felt after I didn't get it right in terms of how to, how big and flexible to make the set-piece process. So we struggled quite hard to be effective attacking-wise in set-pieces, but we became really strong defensively. Can you elaborate a little bit more what you mean by kind of traditional style of, you know, approach to set-pieces? No, but I think for anything, at least in football, where it's a really dynamic game, to, to build a style of play that the players can understand and follow without losing the freedom and intuition to play this random game over big spaces with so much uh, like randomness and uh, relationships on a big pitch, 22 players and all of this, uh, then you always have to find a balance of how much information and how much detail should the players have to deal with to really perform at the top of their potential. So if the level of detail in style of play is quite big, which it was when, uh, with Arsenal. And I came in with, I think, a too big level of detail also in the set-piece process. In the beginning, it was impossible for the player to take it all in. So when I tried to be hard on myself after and understanding why some things work really well and the defensive structure, we the level of detail was probably perfect. It was not too flexible. It was quite firm. And we did the same things week after week to improve step by step. The attacking process was then too detailed and too flexible and too big because that was the system I was used to from before. But I just realized that those players I did it with at Brentford, they were used to that. They have done that for many years and they have they were not so stressed by the fact that my plan was quite detailed. Whereas if you start from a more normal, like I said, is okay, you have a few routines, you use the same all over the year and you train them for every game, but uh, the level of recognition from the player, they they do the same things over time. But the method I came in was really wide, many different routines, many different systems to surprise the opponents. But the problem is if you then surprise yourself, it's not so good. Then you lose <laughs> quality of execution and quality of organization instead. You know, just to kind of give some details to the listeners out there, and you you talked about how you solidified the defensive um, set pieces. You know, in the previous season uh, before you got there, Arsenal had conceded 15 goals on set pieces, and while you were there, um, it was just six. So obviously, that's a nine goal differential, quite quite noticeable. When you're solving a problem like that, what was your kind of first conversation with Mikel about? implementing a new defensive system for set pieces? I mean, first of all, I didn't solve anything. The players solved it 100%. It, it's uh, 
hopefully I gave them some guidance and we did some detailed work that I think is not the most common in football that you really work like details in marking or details in in uh, avoiding a block or like doing your specific role. It's really boring. I mean, players didn't become footballers to understand how to avoid a block, uh, but it would be highly effective to know it. So I think one part what we actually spend some time in detail work that is really boring. It doesn't come from passion. It just really helps improving your role in the team in this specific area. And then, as I said, I think with the defensive side, we really managed to find a process that can go all over the season. So the players get reminded in a good frequency about the small details they should keep doing. Uh, and I think once we started to get the attacking process a little bit more starting in where the players are now and to build gradually, that process also started to become strong. But uh, I will have to say, if, if I look back, the, the first couple of months, I got it wrong. Uh, and that affected our quality in attacking side. That's really interesting. You know, you said to kind of remind them frequently. How often did you remind them about these like details, like avoiding a block? No, that could be, that depends on the games, of course. So I made sure the principle was as clear as possible. Then the key people in the process, the, normally the, the zone players in our hybrid defense, I, I actually fed back with them after every game. So just to see, this is what we do. Here are our principles. Here we live by them. And then on the pitch, I just took always the stance that in every session I I, rem, I do something set piece wise uh, after the session so if I hadn't worked with the markers for a while then I might spend 10 minutes with them in just the marking techniques and the, the marking situations but that could then go a month before I did it the next time so maybe the next chance I had I brought some of the sonal players to do remind them of the principles Next time, maybe I took a few of the attacking players to do one of the routines we think will be happening the next the game. So to constantly try to stay in the process and prepare them for the next game, but also keep the long-term development. So that is tricky. I mean, that takes patience and it takes motivation of the players because they would rather go and shoot 20 shots freely at the after the session. That's so much more passionate for them and so much more fun. So it's a lot about also selling to them that if we spend 10 minutes now on this, it will really help you. It will help you in the game. It will help the team, help you keep your spot in the team. So it's a lot about being a salesman because set pieces is boring to begin with. So to try to make it funny, try to do it in context and try to motivate the players. That's a big part. Now, Jamie Carragher was recently talking about Leicester City's set piece issues, especially defensively. And he was saying that, you know, uh, set pieces largely are a mentality issue. You know, how much do you buy that versus, you know, as you've mentioned, kind of technique and, you know, process? No, but I mean, the process brings mentality. I think he's completely right. But what I normally don't agree on is that either you have the mentality or you don't. Because clearly the same players for Arsenal managed to have a really good mentality and really fight to, to clear every ball. Uh, but so it's more if you have a strong process, the players feel it and then they, they perform and they take more responsibility. So what we managed to do in the defensive process was probably what we didn't manage in the attacking because... They didn't really, I didn't really get them on board. They didn't really feel the control. That also means that when the chance comes, 
you don't really believe that you're good at it and that you're going to put that ball in the right spot or you're going to hit the header perfectly. So I think he's right. It's about mindset and, and belief. But the, if the process is really strong, then you can create that belief. And then, of course, if you either don't concede or on the attacking side, you score a couple of times. Yeah, okay, that builds a belief that you can never talk your way through. It's still, if the players started feeling with for us that we don't concede, the gut feeling is that we don't concede. Okay, that helps the, the belief and the mindset massively. So you can never result will always be a big influence on the players. You cannot get away from that, but it should not be the only influence. To try to get their belief in the process really helps over time. But you need help with the goals also. Of course, of course. Um, I mean, I just found it so interesting before how you were saying that you really actually one of the keys on offense was just like actually limiting the amount of different plays because we always think like, you know, or, you know, a lot of fans think, um, you know, more elaborate plays is is the answer to having better set pieces. But it's really interesting to hear you say that that's actually not the case at all. Um, no, but I think it depends. If Like for Brentford, we had a really flexible system. And since the players could handle the the like, like the amount of information and keeping the timing and execution in all of these then it's really beneficial because you become so unpredictable and we didn't have like four players or five players of 193 centimeters that we can just put the ball in and they can head it so then we have to surprise the opponent uh, but if you have a, a great taker and you have four great attackers of the ball, okay, you don't have to complicate it too much. <laughs> find a way to get them free and put the ball in the right place. So I think it all gets on the context you're in. But what I, what you can really say that if you're going to have the flexible system, you have to build it over time. I think because there's no there's no tradition in football to place that much emphasis and remember that big playbook that has to take time to build and, and uh, gradually make part of your DNA as a team. Now, I know after you left Arsenal, they, you know, actually hired a, another set piece coach to take over your role. You know, do you think every club should have a set piece coach? I mean, should have. I, I'm sure there's not so many specialists out there. I think that will be efficient. Uh, so at the moment, those people are... I mean, you need to find the right uh, man or woman to do it, uh, for sure. But also, if you're going to do it, there must be a full buy-in from all, from the manager to... So everyone accepts that this we're going to spend time and effort on it. Because, of course, you're going to take attention from something else. So I'm not sure every team needs to have one. I think every team needs to have a strong set-piece process. And how you build that, if you build it with your assistant coaches or a specialist... I think is not the key thing, but there need to be a, a thought through process, how to improve it over time. That is more the point. And do you guys have one at Malmo or do you plan to get one? So at the moment, our assistant coaches together with the head coach makes this process as strong as possible. I don't know if we will have a specialist in time. Uh, it has not been the priority so far. Okay. Um, so do you still keep in contact with um, Mikel or anyone uh, on that Arsenal, you know, uh, coaching team? Yeah, I really do. I mean, we, we came really close to each other. Uh, so Mikel uh, Moli is the tactical coach. Him and I formed a really strong friendship. Iñaki, the goalkeeping coach, uh, bro, was the one helping me get attention from Mikel in the first place, I think, because we worked together at Brentford. 
So these guys I speak to every now and then, and and uh, I'm really happy and glad now that when they are starting to really tick as a team. So yeah, every now and then we speak and and uh, discuss some things or just greet each other when something good happens. Yeah, I mean a lot of those guys, like you mentioned, you know, Miguel Molina and uh, Naki and Carlos, they're all you know very young and um, you know very ambitious. You know, how good do you think Arsenal can be? No, I think uh, the sky is the limit, actually. But again, it's a lot of ambitious, process-minded people, and uh, change and progress takes time in football. So I think it's all about is there patience enough to stick with Mikel and this group of people to because it will not happen overnight. You build a squad and you build a process over time. So I think Arsenal showed real confidence through these hardships that has been there. Uh, and hopefully at the moment they get the rewards. Now there's a young and hungry team and a, and a young and hungry staff uh, with a really strong manager. So I think how long that could be, it's of, I don't know. It's about money and it's about uh, the randomness of the game. But uh, it looks good, I have to say. And to bring it back to you, you know, to kind of you know, uh, finish up, what, what are your personal ambitions or goals you know, for the next year or maybe a you know, few years in the future? To become really good at what I do, uh, to be really good in this role that I do for the first time uh, and try to take new steps with Malmö to not only keep the very successful route of winning the Swedish championship, but also compete even more with the bigger budgets in Europe uh, because we need to keep using the advantages of being the strongest Swedish club but at the same time, be the underdog and beat the bigger budgets in Europe. It's a little bit, you know, in one competition, we need to use that we're the biggest and strongest and most attractive. And in the other one, we have to be the underdog and, and use the strongest methods and the strongest preparations to beat uh, bigger budgets. So try to find our way in, a, in our context with our identity to be the best we can be in both these areas. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy the Power BI Masterclass that we're holding on Tuesday, April 19th. More information about that masterclass can be found on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.